the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. If we look to the answer as to why for so many years we achieved so much, prospered as no other people on earth, it was because here in this land we unleashed the energy and individual genius of man to a greater extent than has ever been done before. This great nation will endure as it has endured. Let me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. You are about to embark upon the great crusade toward which we have striven these many months. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. We're not, as some would have us believe, doomed to an inevitable decline. I do not believe in a fate that will fall on us no matter what we do. I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. From every mountainside, let freedom ring, and if America is to be a great nation, this must become true. So let freedom ring. As for the enemies of freedom, those who are potential adversaries, they will be reminded that peace is the highest aspiration of the American people. We will negotiate for it, sacrifice for it. We will not surrender for it now or ever. We are Americans. This is Always Right Radio on AM 1420, The Answer. Here's your host, Bob France. Yes, indeed, and a good morning to you. Thanks so much for starting your day with us. It is 10 minutes after the hour of 9 o'clock on this Tuesday, the 18th morning of the seventh month of the year of our Lord, 2023. We got a great day today. Uh, Peter Kirst and I will join us at the top of the next hour. You know that Pete and I will give you an hour of discussion, analysis, and wisdom that you really cannot find anywhere else, uh, mainly because I'll just let Pete talk. <laughs> uh, that's the benefit for me. Uh, so that's coming up at 1010 this morning. We have a lot to get into, and I certainly welcome you to join us in the first hour or the third hour at 216-901-0945, uh, I'm going to start right now with our Pledge of Allegiance, because I don't want to be distracted as I read to you in the very first segment in the opening monologue, a monologue written, not by me, but uh, in the form of an article for the, uh, for the uh, plain dealer in Cleveland.com. Somebody, finally, a lone voice in the wilderness, speaking out on behalf of constitutional protection, reason, and common sense. That's what that lone voice does. 
in a sea of leftist idiocy, which is all you find at the Cleveland Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. One lone voice rises up from time to time. And we're going to share that with you coming up here in just a couple of minutes. First, let's stand. Patriots, face your flag. Put your hand on your heart and join us for our Pledge of Allegiance. If you are a believer in selling out the Constitution, be it federal or state, to outside interests, well then you really have no respect for that flag nor the country that it represents. You may instead take a knee next to your favorite ex-quarterback. For the rest of us, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Ted Dieden is um, uh, a columnist and a former full-timer. He's now kind of just doing this a little bit in his retirement with uh, uh, Cleveland.com and the Cleveland Plain Dealer. He is one of, along with Kevin O'Brien, one of the two only consistent conservative voices that I have seen in my five decades or so uh, of looking at the Plain Dealer, if not reading it or studying it. And um, he has spoken up. He has spoken up. He is that lone voice in the wilderness of uh, of left wing insanity. And I want to share every single word of what he wrote with you because it's important. You've read all of the anti arguments about issue one. Those who are opposed to it. Here's why you should vote for it. Right, writes Ted Dieden uh, in the Cleveland.com article ran yesterday. Mercifully, we are just 23 days short of Election Day. Early voting has already begun, but August 8th is when, at long last, Ohio voters will have the ultimate say on the one decision that is on the ballot. That would be Issue 1. Perhaps you've heard of it. If you haven't, it's certainly not our fault. Issue 1 is the effort led by Ohio Secretary of State Frank LaRose and supported by the state's Republican leaders to make it more difficult to amend the Ohio Constitution. It would boost the statewide margin needed to pass an amendment to 60% from the current 50% plus one vote. And it would spread out the gathering of signatures required to put an amendment on the ballot from the current 44 counties to all 88. I'm in favor of issue one, but I'll stipulate that there are sound and reasonable arguments on both sides. Unfortunately, however, I don't have a lot of company in that opinion, particularly from the other side. Issue one's appearance on the ballot has thrown its opponents into a, I love this, vituperative frenzy of hysteria far beyond anything I've ever seen in any election, local or national. It's an anti-democratic, morally bankrupt, brazen power grab, a spineless move, a rigged deal, a sinister attempt to hoodwink voters, a naked attack on democracy that is plundering voters' rights through craven calculations and breathtaking hypocrisy. Sinister, a sham. Its supporters are power-mad, lightweight lapdogs who are plundering voters' rights and torching democracy in this state. And those quotes are just from the editorials, columns, letters, and podcasts presented by this news organization. Readers could be forgiven for concluding that Issue 1's passage would mean the end of democracy in our state. The draining of Lake Erie, plagues of frogs, flies, and mosquitoes, and quite unlikely, or quite likely, an unbroken string of Ohio State losses to Michigan that will stretch out for decades. Counting all the anti-opinion pieces is beyond my willingness to revisit them, but you can find a list of our recent news stories here, 36 at this writing, just since May 31st. 
It wasn't difficult to count the pro issue one opinion columns. One from me back in January. Again, this is Ted Diet in writing. As I said above, there are reasonable arguments on each side. You'll have no trouble finding anti-issue on opinions, but let me tell you why I'm for it. A constitution is the stable and sturdy framework of a government, built for the long term. It is a document that describes powers and processes and ensures continuity. It should be amended only rarely, and then only with a supermajority support. I'll pause there to opine and say, damn right. That's what a constitution is, and that's how a constitution should be changed or amended, only with supermajority support. It's got to be something that a wide, vast um, majority of, of Ohioans believe needs to be done because it's going to affect all Ohioans, not what half of Ohioans think, plus one voter. I completely concur. Anyway. Back to Ted. The U.S. Constitution requires a two-thirds vote from each House of Congress and concurrence from three-fourths of the legislatures from the 50 states, a significantly higher bar than the simple 60% majority that Ohio Issue 1 proposes. Because of that, it has been amended only 27 times in 235 years. That's part of its strength. And by the way, I'll pause there and remind everybody that 10 of those 27 are the, uh, the Bill of Rights, which were intended to be added in as the lead of the Constitution. Continuing, larding up the Ohio Constitution with expedient legislation masquerading as amendments weakens it and subjects it to the whims of whichever way the political winds are blowing at the time. Unlike legislation, every word of a constitutional amendment is chiseled in stone. It cannot be changed, withdrawn, or restructured without another constitutional amendment. Perfect examples are the redistricting amendments that Ohio voters approved in 2015 and 2018. They were clumsily and inartfully drawn, as we saw over and over last year while the legislature and the Ohio Supreme Court struggled in partisan arm wrestling to interpret and enforce them. With proposed amendments regulating abortion and recreational marijuana looming, there is no reason to expect any more clarity in the future if either or both are passed. Issue 1's opponents keep calling it an attack on democracy. It is not. There are two responses to that dishonest and misleading accusation. First, a constitutional amendment is not the only way that citizen-based, grassroots organizations can get a proposal on the ballot. They can propose their own laws. As outlined in Article 2 of the Constitution, they can start by petitioning the legislature. If the legislature declines to act, they can file a supplemental petition and collect signatures to get their proposal on the ballot for consideration by Ohio's voters. Also, they can petition to hold a referendum for an already passed law and force an up or down statewide vote. Majority rules. And second, obviously, Far from attacking democracy, Issue 1 proponents are are using democracy in their effort to get the issue passed. The vote on August 8th will determine what happens, up or down, 50% plus 1. The people will decide, and again, majority rules, democracy in action. Of course, the prescribed way to enact or change state laws is through the legislature, whose members are elected for that purpose. Issue 1 opponents maintain that's not fair. 
because the gerrymandered Ohio districts have led to Republican supermajorities in both the Senate and the House. It is true that one could probably draw new districts that would result in more Democrats in the legislature. But look, Republicans rule this state, gerrymandering or no gerrymandering. I'll pause here to point out this is what I've been saying for weeks. Well, how's a red state? All of the statewide races go to Republicans. And as Ted writes, I'll continue here, twice in a row, former President Donald Trump prevailed in Ohio by large margins. In 2022, all nine statewide races were won by Republicans, including three Supreme Court races, now that their party affiliation has begun to be designated on the ballot. I'll pause there again. Look at those numbers. Nine statewide races. Can't gerrymander an entire state. Those are statewide, not district. And Republicans win. We're a red state as much as the Democrats hate that fact. That's why they're trying to pull this crap with issue one, opposing issue one. And then trying to jam through their uh, abortion until the moment of birth and transing of kids without parental input uh, on their uh, ballot initiative in November. That's what this is all about for them. Back to Ted Dieter. That means to me that a majority of Ohioans like the way Republicans govern and the way they enact our laws. One of those 36 news stories on issue one noted above listed all the amendments that would not be law in Ohio if the bar for amending the Constitution had been higher, from minimum wage to women's suffrage to civil rights issues and others. Nonsense. They all likely would be law today, but through the legislative process or citizen-initiated statutes statutes or referendums rather than constitutional amendments. Issue one opponents accuse the issue's backers of trying to sneak it onto the ballot in a low-turnout August election. But LaRose's original effort was to get it on the ballot for the May election, which was thwarted when then-House Democrats teamed with moderate Republicans to elect Jason Stevens as House Speaker, and who was originally less enthusiastic about the issue than the man he beat, Derek Maron. Had Maron become the Speaker, the issue would have been on the May ballot, and all of this screaming would be over. Let me pause there. Spot on. We have talked to Derek Maron about that. We have talked to a wide variety of members of the Ohio House and Senate about that, and that's exactly right. House Democrats schemed to work with the uh, trans Democrats in the Republican caucus to violate their own pledge to elect the uh, uh, to uh, uh, support the elected uh, um, speaker, the speaker elect, if you will, um, in their own House caucus vote. If Democrats hadn't done that, and the trans-Democrats and the Republican Party hadn't done that, this would have been on the ballot in May, and he's right. This would be over now. Back to the um, editorial, the op-ed by uh, by Ted Dieterman at Cleveland.com. Opponents say that Issue 1 is a sneaky way to defeat the pro-abortion forces who are trying to put on put an abortion rights amendment to a vote in November. I'm not sure how sneaky it is. Everybody knows about it. But, of course, the timing is directed toward the abortion amendment. If the bar is going to be raised for amending the Constitution, it should be done before a vote on one of the most important issues of the age. Abortion rights should be decided by legislation or a citizen-based referendum where the wording can be debated and adjusted if necessary rather than being chiseled into the Ohio Constitution. The current amendment process has been in place for 111 years, as issue one opponents never tire of pointing out. But a lot of things have changed over the last 111 years. If Ohio voters are able to look past the hysteria 
and consider the solid reasons for passing Issue 1, the process for amending the Ohio Constitution will be added to those changes, as it should. Ted Dieten is a member of the editorial board of Cleveland.com and the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And again, he, along with Kevin O'Brien, been, you know, the only uh, conservative-minded voices uh, at that paper for so many decades. And now he, he has written the only two pro-issue one op-eds in the entire, in, uh, for the entire company, for Cleveland.com and for the Cleveland Plain Dealer. 36 others have been written against issue one. Only two for it and by the same guy. That lets you know how left-wing and ridiculous uh, the Cleveland Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com truly are. But I just want to say thank you to Ted Diet. And no, more than that, I want to say... Can you dig it? Because he broke down and dissected every ridiculous argument that the left has thrown up there against issue one. All of them. He did so artfully, he did so articulately, he did so sensibly, he did so reasonably. And that is something that they want nothing to do with, any of those things. Thank you to Ted Diet, and if you want to talk about that, let's do it. we got to vote. Yes on issue one. Early voting is underway. Do it today. Why wait? 216-901-0945-888-281-1110. Right back. Okay, 928. Urging you to vote yes on August 8th to protect our kids. Radical activists want to change the Ohio Constitution and strip away parental rights. On August 8th, let's stop them. Vote yes to protect our kids. Senator J.D. Vance laying it out. He is exactly right. Radical extremists from out of Ohio want to change the Ohio Constitution. Some people have asked me why. Why do these out-of-state people want to pour millions or billions or whatever of dollars into the state of Ohio? We're not the whole country, and that is true. But the reality is this is a nationwide effort. The abortionists, particularly, as well as the, um, uh, the abusive indoctrinators trying to trans America's children, uh, as well as just socialists who do not want independence and do not want uh, the Republican system of government, that means we are a democratic republic system of government to prevail, they're looking to take this down all over the country. And they're doing it state by state. And Ohio is a huge one. Ohio's a red state. If they can take a giant bite out of the red state majorities or super majorities we have here by putting stuff in the Constitution that completely goes against what an overwhelming number of Ohioans support, that is a massive feather in their cap, and it's going to spur them on to more states. So it's a big deal, and that's why we've got to fight it, and we're going to continue to do so. Vote yes on August 8th, or vote yes in early voting for Issue 1. More coming up after this. Enlightening the sleeping masses and stoking the fire of the American dream. Always right radio with Bob France on the answer. Okay, 936. Thanks again to Ted Dieden for that tremendous piece in uh, Cleveland.com or on Cleveland.com. I don't know if it's in the paper. I don't pick up that paper. And they stopped delivering it most of the days anyway. But uh, uh, great stuff there. If you are look, a lot of people say to me, Bob, where can I find a good comprehensive list of reasons to vote for issue one? Bob, where can I find the arguments against what the left is making uh, about issue one? 
And I kind of point them to here, there. I've got a few things posted, by the way, on my social media that do indeed provide some of those things. But I don't think anyone is, has been as comprehensive uh, about it as Ted was in this article. So I will share this with them from now on, this link. It is on my uh, social media pages, Twitter at France Rants. It's on Facebook, uh, always right. I did reactivate my Facebook page. I've just been using my private page for some time now, but I have uh, reactivated and uh, started managing, again, Always Right Radio on Facebook. So if you want to look for that, uh, you can see the Yes on One profile pic that I have put there. But um, uh, there are a few other pieces that you can read, but Ted Dieden's link is the one that you should share with other people. If people say, hey, Bob, how do I explain this to other people, why they should vote yes, that is your answer. By the way, one other quickie before I go to the phones. And also move into some other topics. Um, we had I had a great message yesterday from Tom Z. Right as the show ended, as people were calling me and saying, "Bob, I've seen a lot of issue one uh, against signs. You know, the no on one signs around Northeast Ohio for this, you know, this area, that area, another area. And how come I don't see so many yes?" And I told them, uh, you know, the same thing I'll tell you now, and that is, they're there. You've got to get them. Uh, they're slowly kind of. I guess they did kind of slow roll the acquisition of the signs, but now hundreds of them are available in a number of different GOP headquarters. And you just have to get them distributed. I know there's going to be a huge distribution tomorrow night when a couple, 300 people or so show up to hear Peter Kersenow and Ohio Supreme Court Justice Joe Dieters speak uh, tomorrow night at the Strongsville GOP. They've got hundreds there. So they, they are in... And they are being distributed in the best we can. You should contact your local GOP leadership or headquarters, you know, to find that out. But Tom Z messaged me right at the end of the show yesterday and said, hey, how about we get a little creative here? How about, uh, uh, ask Tom Z, we appeal uh, to the um, uh, self-reliance of Ohioans and Americans. If you can't get a sign that's been pre-made, get some crayons, get a magic marker, Get a piece of poster board from Discount Drug Mart. It's like 79 cents. And make your own sign. Put it up. I told Tom at the end of that, it's a great point. I never thought about it. Put your own yes on issue one sign up. If you can't get one from the official, you know, locations or any of the uh, pre-made, uh, you know, plastic signs with the, uh, with the, uh, you know, with the, uh, wire, uh, you know, stands, get yourself a little stick and a piece of poster board. Tape it, staple it, glue it, whatever, and write on their yes and issue one. Let people know how you feel so that they can indeed be inspired by that. <clears throat> it's a great point by Tom Z, so do what you got to do, right? Dan is in uh, Middleburg Heights. Hi, Dan. You're on the air. Fire away. Good morning. Good morning. I wanted to uh, make a comment on this Constitution. It's really been bugging me, and I learned a little bit from your show, from other mm-hmm. callers. You, uh, not callers, but, uh, but uh, excuse me. Uh, guests. Uh, guests. Guests, yeah. you know, they call yeah. in. You, you can't, if most people in Ohio, this, we're in a bad situation here on this one. I, I'm all for it, and you're a great job, you know, trying to get this changed. But Ohio was a state, I believe, around 1803, okay? They, did, they didn't allow uh, people to vote directly for issues like this to change the Constitution until the early 1900s when progressivism started to become prevalent in state legislatures, and, and they became on the rise. That's how we got to the 50% plus one. You cannot have, when you change a constitution, either at the federal or state level, individual people voting this way to change something so important. And that's why we need to have this changed. But 
uh, the way you solve this is this really should be done not by the people, but by all 88 counties in Ohio, with each one getting a vote. And, I'm, and this isn't me talking. This is like Thomas Jefferson. I've called you a couple times on this topic, mm-hmm. and it's very important. This way you don't have uh, large areas like Cleveland, Columbus, or Cincinnati they can go out like you've been saying on your show, having people going up and down the street. And even if you want to vote yes, they say, "Well, just put it on, put your name down anyhow," because I get paid for it. But they'll they'll outvote us if you're doing that, even well, as much as you yeah. want this passed. So, well, they may. But they, you know what they, I'm trying they, to tell you? I do, and and they may, but then again, they may not. Again, because if we look at as Ted outlined in the article, and as I've said on a number of other occasions. Um, the conservative voice, the red, if you will, the the Republican um, ideal is is rampant in Ohio. We win statewide races all of the time. I agree time. with you. You know, I and agree. so so, but but to your to your to your larger point, though, if we did want to try to mirror to an extent the way the United States conducts its you know amendment process or its electoral right. process, you know, obviously it would take seventy five percent of the states uh, and, and then well, two thirds of the uh, of the Congress to change something at the federal level. Seventy five percent of Ohio's eighty eight counties. How about that? Get seventy five percent of the counties to uh, you know the county commissions or or whatever that they that's have. what I'm trying to tell you, yeah. Bob, because yeah. when you vote for the federal amendment change Ohio is represented as a sovereign entity, not 12 million individual people voting. It's the legislature that votes to change it. That's where the 75% comes in, and we got to vote for legislators to do that. We don't do it. You know, I don't, you don't, okay? But on the state level here in Ohio, they've got me and you voting to, for this here, and we're, you're lucky if you're going to get a million people showing up out of 8 million possible voters. It yep. may not even be that many. No, that's true. That's true, and uh, and that's why you know, and uh, and and I, and I don't want to belabor the point. And thank you for the call, Dan. I appreciate it. You make great points as you always do. I don't want to belabor the point, but this is exactly why a supermajority must be required. And asking sixty percent is really not even a supermajority. You understand what I'm saying? It's better than fifty percent plus one vote. I we have to underscore that. The way the, the, the Constitution can be amended right now with a citizen-initiated uh, uh, ballot initiative, we can be literally right down the middle. You could have half of the registered voters in this state feel one way about an issue, and that doesn't have to be the abortion or the trans or whatever. Whatever it is. I don't care if it's minimum wage, marijuana, uh, whatever. If half of the state feels one way and the other half of the state feels another way, one voter gets to decide that? One voter's it's 50% plus one vote. And that gets etched in stone or chiseled, as Ted said, in the Ohio Constitution? That's insane. The Constitution is for everybody. It's for the whole state. It affects everybody. If it's going to be amended, it better be a very strong supermajority, I think no less than 66.6%. Two-thirds majority of the state should have to say, yeah, we've got to change the Constitution. Not 50% plus one. If it's 50%, then you know what? Use the legislative process the way it's intended in a democratic republic. That's what we are, a constitutional republic. Go to your legislators and say, this is how I feel, and half of the state agrees with me. Then let them ballot out on, uh, not Capitol Hill, but in uh, the General Assembly in Columbus. 
in the State House and the Senate. Use the process as it was created. Because then, if the other half gets power, they can say, go to their legislators and say, you know that thing you guys passed last time? We disagree. You need to have another vote, put another bill forward, and they can amend it or change it or, or, or get rid of it. That's how the republic was, was designed. Not to have the people voting themselves to change the Constitution every time the political winds shift and there's something that they decide they want or don't want. So therefore, let's change the Constitution. A Constitution is not meant to be treated like the Ohio Revised Code. It's not meant to be treated like the, the, um, uh, the U.S. Code. The U.S. Code, US, the United States Constitution is not. So it's a, it's a very important point to understand exactly what a constitutional amendment is, how rare it must be, and quite frankly, how overwhelming in a majority it must be to change it. So we'll leave that there for now. As a matter of fact, let me use this as a timeout because I want to change subjects. I've got something I want to share with you. It's kind of important. We'll talk about that coming up next. Always right radio on AM 1420, the answer. Nine forty-eight now. <clears throat> on always right radio, AM fourteen twenty. The answer. I want to talk a little bit about victimhood. Larry Elder always used to call them on his show victocrats. No victocrats allowed. Democrat victims, professional victims. That's that's what they are. There's an article uh, that was written and posted on MSNBC recently, declaring that if you like physical fitness. workouts and exercise, it makes you uh, a right-wing extremist, borderline fascist, borderline Nazi. Exercise is for white supremacists. I saw that story, and then in in a separate time, it was yesterday, I saw a tweet that told us, Sleeping too well is also a sign of racism and white supremacy. Now, that article was written back in 2015, so it's eight years old, but I think it's probably more appropriate and more pronounced today. It was in the Atlantic, the racial inequality of sleep. Blacks don't sleep as well as whites. That's racist. And here's what can be done to fix it. I saw these two stories side by side, and I said, this, this cannot be. This cannot be. If you are energetic and full of uh, vigor and, and you like to exercise, you're a white supremacist. If you're a fat, lazy ass who likes to sleep really well, well, you're a white supremacist. What can we do? Is there anything we can do to stop being white supremacists? Is there anything we can do to stop being far-right extremists uh, or, 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 or uh, whatever else, else it is that they want to call us? <clears throat> MSNBC recently tweeted a link to an article stating, Pandemic fitness trends have gone extreme, literally. White supremacists' latest scheme to valorize violence and hypermasculinity has gone digital. They also tweeted, physical fitness and violent hypermasculinity have always been central to the far right. So in other words, if you value being physically fit, you're a Nazi. Or at the very least, hypermasculine. If you take care of your body, got a Peloton in your home, the geniuses at MSNBC say you are a right-wing extremist. 
The author of the article, somebody named uh, Cynthia Miller Idris, astutely noted, it appears the far right has taken advantage of the pandemic at-home fitness trend to expand its decade-plus radicalization of physical mixed martial arts and combat sports spaces. <laughs> An article in the American Thinker points out those clever far-righters pouncing on the left's mandate that we all be locked down in our homes and then using that time to stay in shape or get in shape. Although this assertion doesn't much jive with the fact that about 4 in 10 Americans gained weight during the pandemic, but it must have been salt-of-the-earth Biden voters who embrace our democracy. Miller Address actually referenced Mein Kampf as evidence to support her thesis. She disparaged physical fitness and martial arts as tools used primarily by racists in order to impose their racism on innocent people around the world. She wrote that the intersection of extremism and femi- or excuse me, and fitness leans into a shared obsession with the male body. Training, masculinity, testosterone, strength, and competition. Physical fitness training, especially in combat sports, appeals to the far right for many reasons. Fighters are trained to accept significant physical pain, to be warriors, and to embrace messaging around solidarity, heroism, and brotherhood. Now let me pause right there and say to that writer from MSNBC, Can you dig it? You are diggity doggone freaking right. Yes, we do support that. And we do believe that we should be able to withstand significant physical pain and to be warriors and to embrace messages of solidarity, heroism, and brotherhood. Why do you think you're free? Why do you think that this country exists as it does? How do you not understand that it takes physically fit warriors who believe in solidarity, heroism, brotherhood, the ability to withstand pain? How do you think we win battles, win wars, win freedom, win the liberty you enjoy today? Those are not negative traits. She writes about them. MSNBC writes about them as if those are flaws and not virtues. Training, masculinity, testosterone, strength, and competition are phenomenal things. It's why we succeed. It's why we are able to build tall buildings and dig deep mines. It's why we're able to withstand the high seas, why we're able to to withstand all of the physical, grueling nature of advancement that this, this entire country and the civilization have been built upon. That's the reality. Now, strangely, that article I was just quoting from, from MSNBC, was written and published in March of 2022. Why would they recycle and rerun this in tw- uh, 15 months later in July of 2015? Or, excuse me, July of, of, of 2023. 15 months later. Why would that be? Regardless of their reasons, they trotted out the notion that if white people are physically fit, it makes them racist, far-right extremists. And then that stands in stark contrast to this article in The Atlantic from 2015 that I just saw yesterday. Sleep is racist. If you get good sleep, you are a racist white person who fears nothing compared to the uneasy sleep that African-Americans get. 
because they're constantly worried about discrimination. Wait, what? Yeah. The article wrote a piece. I didn't read the whole thing. I read enough to know what I was reading, but there's no way I was going to read what appears to be, I don't know, a couple of dozen pages in this article about a study done to find the differences in sleep between blacks and whites. And what they found is that black people can't get good rest because the country in which they live is so incredibly discriminatory. White people who sleep well do so in the comfort of knowing that they themselves are privileged and safe and don't have anything to worry about. It's unbelievable. The stress caused, I'm quoting from the Atlantic story, the stress caused by discrimination is one strong possibility of, the, uh, of why there is such a big sleep gap. In a San Diego sleep study, they found that slow-wave sleep, which is the best sleep, is very sensitive to stress which is in turn our body's signal to remain vigilant against perceived threats, including discrimination. After the participant stays in the San Diego Sleep Lab, researchers had them take a survey designed to assess the level of discrimination they felt on any given day. Participants, Participants were asked to agree or disagree with statements like, in my life I have experienced prejudice because of my ethnicity, and my ethnic group is often criticized in this country. As if you didn't know how those surveys were going to come out. And then armed with those obvious yes answers, they come to find out there's a correlation between those who were discriminated and those who got good sleep versus poor sleep. Turns out there was a correlation. More discrimination meant low, uh, less slow-wave sleep. If you take out the discrimination piece, the average African-American and the average Caucasian uh, look a lot more similar. So bottom line here. If you're a fat ass who sleeps all day and sleeps well, it's because you are a comfortable, white, privileged racist. If you are a fitness buff who likes to get up and go to the, go to the gym and train and work out, you're also a white supremacist and a racist. I don't know what we can do. Do we work out or do we lay around and sleep? I don't know what we can do, but what I do know is that this is what the left does. Find ways to divide. First it's on race, then it's on gender and sex and orientation, and then it's on class, and now it's on uh, sleep versus exercise. It doesn't matter. This is what Marxist theory is all about, dividing along something. Because, of course, united we will stand and divided we will fall. That's their goal in this victocrat society. I'll be You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. We'll preserve for our children this, the last best hope of man on earth, or we'll sentence them to take the last step into a thousand years of darkness. Welcome to Always Right Radio with Bob France on AM 1420. The answer. Onward. Into hour number two, we roll. Thanks for being with us on Always Right Radio. It is uh, eight minutes after the hour of 10 o'clock. It is a Tuesday. It is the 18th morning of the seventh month of the year of our Lord, 2023. Did you hear what I said? I said, it's a Tuesday. That makes it a curse in our day. On AM 1420, the answer. Peter Kersenow, uh United States Civil Rights Commissioner, attorney, author, 
columnist, sometimes law professor, and of course the host of the Curse Now Report right here on AM 1420, The Answer. Are we going to add wide receiver for the Browns to that anytime soon there, Pete? You know, I think it's about time. I think they're on the verge. I know the, my phone has rung a couple times and somebody you know, hung up before I got a chance to answer, and I think it was probably the Browns' front office. I'm pretty sure of it. You should probably call them back. Uh, in fact, if you want to take time out here and make that call now, I mean, who knows how long they're going to be available. I, I, Bob, I this is a negotiation. If I call back, I look too eager, you know? <laughs> so they're going to have to come up with a pretty good contract for me. Spoken like a true lawyer. Perfectly said. All right, Pete, we got a lot of work to get into, uh, my friend. So I want to start out <clears throat> with the story that I was just discussing before the break. Did you know, and I know what a workout warrior you are, which is why, of course, you're waiting for that call from the Browns. People who do not know know uh, should know that you are uh, an absolute beast when it comes to training, particularly at your age. But quite frankly, the things you do and put your body through would be impressive for any age, including 40 years your junior. Um, that makes you a white supremacist, and you need to know that. You're a racist and a white supremacist, and MSNBC says so. Anyone who values being physically fit is practically a Nazi. Um, in the article written by MSNBC, specifically by Cynthia Miller Idris, uh, fitness trends have gone extreme, literally white supremacist latest scheme to valorize violence and hypermasculinity has gone digital. Physical fitness and violent hypermasculinity have always been central to the far right. Uh, she said it appears that the far right has taken advantage of pandemic at-home fitness trends to expand its decade-plus radicalization of physical martial mixed martial arts and combat sports spaces uh, for many reasons. Um, they appeal, uh, combat sports appeal to the far right and white supremacists because fighters are trained to accept significant physical pain, to be warriors, to embrace the messaging around solidarity, solidarity heroism, and brotherhood. So, Peter Kirstenau, apparently all of those things apply to you, given your penchant for physical fitness. Yeah, what do you, you know, what do you make of them in MSNBC's uh, <laughs> assessment? You know, the pencil neck geeks at MSNBC really do need to get a life. Uh, unfortunately, they, they don't have anything of substance to talk about, so they talk about something as absurd as this. I mean, you, obviously it's absurd. I, even know, I mean, we're addressing it because MSNBC talked about it, and it's kind of fun. It's, it's fun to see the left. And, you know, it's for a long time, many of us on the right have looked at conventions of people on the left and looked at their male folk, and, you know, she's got a point there. <laughs> You know. But you, but you know, Pete, you want to know what makes it even more astounding, and the fact that we are addressing this thing is, they thought this was so good. They thought that this this article and and its theory was so solid that they ran it twice. This originally was run in uh, in uh, 2022, 15 months ago is when this was first run, March of 2022. Still during that kind of you know coming out of or or toward the end, if you will, of the pandemic and of uh, the lockdowns and so on and so forth. They ran this 15 months ago and decided it was so good and so important to divide people along racial lines now by their exercise that they chose to recycle it and run it again, Pete. Yeah, and, you know, it's part and parcel of an overarching agenda on the part, and this is, now I'm being serious, uh, you take a look at the ideology agenda and the, um, just look the literature of the left, and they deprecate males and masculinity, same with, in this particular instance, so-called, you know, workout warriors, 
um, anything that is traditionally masculine is is um, uh, you know uh, they they deprecate it, and um, if you take a look at our schools and what they're doing there, it's a similar thing. Um, I don't know precisely where they think they're going, but it's an ongoing and widespread phenomenon on the part of the left. And, you know, there's been copious evidence, even studies on this for people who apparently don't have much to do, but professors have actually studied this. And there's truth to the fact that if you're physically fit or try to remain physically fit, you're more likely than not to be conservative as opposed to progressive. And, you know, we constantly joke about progressive males and how, um, you know, these are not necessarily guys who you want your daughters, if they're in trouble, to be protected by, you know. Um, but nonetheless, hey, if they want to say I'm a white supremacist, I'm, I'm glad to, you know, take that label because I'd rather be the way I am than most of the Democratic congressmen I see. I'll be visiting some of them at the end of this week. I mean, take a look at Adam Schiff. I don't mean to be, I mean, we could have a lot of fun with this, but, you know, um, I'd much rather, I think, be, you know, somebody like, um, I can't think of anybody off the top of my head, think of the average Republican than say uh, an Adam Schiff. Uh, so, <laughs> um, I don't know. I, I think Famously that, named uh, Pencil Neck, by the way. That's, uh, yes, right, <laughs> that's exactly. Pete, um, an interesting sidebar to this is that suggesting that physical fitness and physical superiority is white supremacy and physical athletic prowess is white superiority, considering that the vast majority of professional athletics right. and sports are dominated by African-Americans is quite, is quite interesting. But moreover, the left is telling us that physical fitness is a white supremacy um, uh I don't know, it's a trope, I guess, but physical fitness is, is akin to white supremacists. Um, they also say that math is white supremacy. They also say that um, proper grammar is white supremacy. We shouldn't expect African Americans to speak with proper English because it is not in their culture. We shouldn't expect them to be able to know advanced math, and we shouldn't give advanced math or hold advanced math classes because math classes because African Americans cannot get into them. So, what exactly is the left saying? It sounds to me like the bigotry of the American left is yeah. reaching new levels, isn't it, Pete? Yeah, and it's it's unmasked also. I've said on your show for years now, Bob, that in my experience, to the extent I've experienced any bigotry or racism, and I don't go out looking for it. I mean, I, I really don't. I, you know, frankly, I go on with my life. But to the extent it's been such that it's been noticeable, it's come uniformly from the left. And it's come in a fashion that is condescending. It's uh, holding one to lower standards. The expectations are lower. It is the essence of racism. They actually they believe in their heart of hearts. Now, I don't mean to paint this among all progressives. There are good progressives out there. But when you're talking about the movement progressives and a significant swath of them, they're the ones who think that, oh, our poor little brown brothers need to be raised up. They just don't have the goods intellectually. They can't compete here. This is why math is racist. This is why reading is racist. This is why neatness is racist. This is why almost every foundational aspect of civilization is considered to be racist, because they think that blacks and Hispanics, not so much Asians, but to some extent, but blacks and Hispanics just can't cut it. They just don't have the intellectual chops to cut it. Um, 
that patronization is the kind of racism that's pervasive throughout the country now. It's what fuels the diversity pandemic, as I call it. It's what fuels what we saw at Harvard and other schools that engage in racial preferences. They don't try. Think about this. They spend billions on racial preferences, failed racial preferences, and they lower standards to the level of mediocrity rather than spend the time K through 12, but most importantly, try to encourage people to have babies within the context of a marriage where the statistical evidence is overwhelming, irrefutable, that if you are in a circumstance where you have two parents, where you do have decent schools, people compete on their own merit and on their own level, but they refuse to do that kind of stuff. Instead, they prefer to have the cudgel of calling America a racist and a white supremacist culture, and then try to just artificially elevate blacks and Hispanics through preferences and calling everybody else racist if, in fact, blacks and Hispanics can't or don't have the same grades, board scores, uh, you know, participation percentages as whites and Asians do. That's very well articulated, Pete. And the last point on this subject is an entirely different story. It's actually eight years old. It's from 2015, but I saw it on Twitter last night. And I just couldn't help but juxtapose the story that said, if you are a physical fitness nut as a white person, you are a racist. But if you're a fat, lazy guy who likes to sleep a lot, you're also a racist. Uh, this, story from the, this story from Atlanta, the Atlantic from 2015, Pete, uh, is about a sleep study. Its headline is, The Racial Inequality of Sleep. Black Americans aren't sleeping as well as whites. Here's why that's a public health problem and what, what can be done to fix it. To boil it down, it comes down to discrimination. According to the article and according to the study, the stress caused by discrimination is why blacks can't sleep so well. They they, they go to sleep and they don't want to squeeze their eyes shut too tightly and get into deep, uh, what they call slow sleep, because they don't know when discrimination is going to strike them while they sleep. And so discrimination, it's not a joke. So if you sleep well, you are a white privileged, <laughs> a white supremacist. If you don't sleep well, it's because you're black and you're afraid that discrimination is going to come and get you. Uh, I just find it, I don't know what we can do to win, Pete. Uh, if we're physically fit, well, I th- we're I think racist, you have to laugh if we don't sleep them. too much, we're racist, I don't get it. I, th- I think the best reaction is just laugh at them because it deserves that. It deserves ridicule. That is ridiculous. Everything is racist when it comes to progressives because they've got no other arguments. They can't justify their policy prescriptions on a one-on-one basis. They can't do it based on substance. They have to call something racist to come up with a prescription, a policy prescription to oppose it. And, of course, it's always in a leftward direction that the policy prescription goes. But everything is racist. Again, uh, you know, I, I guess maybe I've had my fill on the Civil Rights Commission over two decades. Everything in the world is racist. The most absurd propositions are raised by the left in claiming that something is racist when there's a perfectly rational explanation for almost everything that has nothing whatsoever to do with race. But they have no policy prescriptions. They're bereft. They are bankrupt of policy prescriptions. So the only thing they can do is call you racist if you oppose whatever policy they want to put forth that is inane, for example defund the police. Now, uh, I've been on TV for years saying that is the stupidest thing imaginable. But nonetheless, they come up with defund the police. And who does that hurt? Who does it hurt? It hurts blacks and Hispanics more than anybody else. Almost every single policy prescription the left comes up with ostensibly to help 
blacks and Hispanics, to a lesser extent Asians, because Asians do pretty well on their own, um, but almost every one of their policy prescriptions ends up making things worse. It drives me nuts, Bob, on the Civil Rights Commission. Uh, virtually every hearing we have has some bearing on some dis- d- disparate impact, some di- uh, disparity between, uh, between the races, and the explanation brought by progressive witnesses is always racism. But then I ask, I always ask, Give me an example of racism. Give me an example of discrimination on the basis of race pursuant to such policy prescription. And I always, always get blank stares. They like to make the allegation, but can never, ever, ever back it up. Now, this is not to say in a nation of 340 million people, however, however uh, uh, whatever the number is, that there aren't racists out there. Sure. But to say that the United States of America is, number one, systemically racist is a hoot. It is in the opposite direction. Almost every policy prescription goes in the direction of helping minorities. But to say that individual uh, uh, Americans are racist in 340 million, yeah, a few, but the vast majority. And, Bob, I'm of an age where I, re- I remember the trajectory. I've been on the trajectory with respect to racism. We have vanishingly little racism. If you are failing in the country today, it is your fault. Blame yourself and don't let the Democratic Party fool you and keep you down by telling you it's somebody else's problem. That is the trick. Do not ever go for it. That's the essence of racism. And, Pete, you know, I'll, I'm going to throw one last uh, quick note in there for you to quick comment on the, the sleep story where they said African-Americans don't sleep as well because they're worried about <laughs> discrimination coming to get them in the middle of the night. The, there might be something to that, but it's not <clears throat> racist. If I will admit. If I lived in a high-crime area where break-ins overnight are common, where drive-bys are common, or at least, you know, frequent enough to the point where I just might not feel comfortable, is there going to be a bullet whizzing through my child's room? I might sleep a little lighter. I might sleep with one foot on the floor and get ready to go if that's what I have to. But that wouldn't be racist because, as you point out in your statistical analyses of these things, citing federal crime statistics, the overwhelming 95-plus percent of those types of things that happen in those uh, communities are happening within the same race. Yeah, and the progressives, as I've said before, they don't think we can hold blacks and Hispanics, we can't hold brown people to just a standard that everybody hews to. Everybody. Everybody. That's all. All we want is a standard that is a human standard that gives us safety, that lets our kids learn in comfort. I mean, this is craziness. And all of their policy prescriptions hurt, not all their policy prescriptions, I can't speak to their policy on Ukraine, for example, but nonetheless, you know what I mean. Most of the domestic policy prescriptions, if you take a look at their impact, and I have because this is all I do on on the Civil Rights Commission, you take a look at their impact. You can draw a straight line from some inane policy, but I repeat myself, some policy from the left and a negative outcome for blacks and Hispanics. And unfortunately, there, there are some uh, a little bit of matriculation of blacks to the Republican Party. Uh, there's a significant shift among Hispanics to the Republican Party. Hispanics have decided they've taken a look at the leftist policy prescription. They go like, no mas. I mean, this is ridiculous. Uh, you know, the progressives, the values, the culture of progressives are completely antithetical, not just to black culture, but to Hispan- almost every culture, okay, except for the Ivy culture. This is something... As I say, it is, at bare minimum, it is um, 
bias, but it's definitely, in my estimation, as I've said to you before, in my time on, on this earth, to the extent I've experienced racism, which has been rare, it has come uniformly from the left. Peter Kersenow is with us. It's 1024. A quick time out. We'll come right back with more Kersenow and, uh, and blacks and Hispanics benefiting from the system yet again. Wait till you hear this one, Pete. That's next day in 1420. The answer. Okay, Pete, we're only going to be able to get a small taste of this one, and then we'll probably continue it on the other side of the break. But let me, let me set the table for you here. The New York State teacher's exam apparently was so incredibly racially biased back in the 90s that it is costing New York taxpayers $1.8 billion in judgments today. Roughly 5,200 black and Hispanic ex-New York teachers and once aspiring teachers are going to divide $1.8 billion in judgments after the city stopped fighting a nearly three-decade federal discrimination suit that said that exam was biased. Turns out that 90% of the, the uh, teaching applicants or, or hopefuls who took the test who were white passed the 80-question multiple-choice NSA test between March 1993 and June 95. But only 30, uh, 53% of African Americans passed it. Only 50% of Latinos passed it. And as it turns out, it's because the test was racist um, yeah. and, and culturally biased. Pete, when you left college, you had to take a test to get into law school, right? They call that the LSAT? Yeah, I took uh, I took all the tests. I scored way up there. Look, this these tests. There's nothing whatsoever racist or biased about them. Nothing whatsoever. And I don't say that simply from my experience or that I did because I did really well. It's because I have looked at. I've litigated some of these, and I've been on the Civil Rights Commission again. This is what I do. This is lunacy. The reason why you've got a settlement is, just like with a lot of other lawsuits, you've got something that's been going on for 25, 30 years. They've spent tons of money litigating something, and finally they say no mas. But also what happens is you get strategic litigation. This happens more than you would think, Bob, especially when there's a lawsuit brought against the government. You will get a favorable, like, like the Biden administration, people within the Justice Department who are favorably disposed to the narrative that blacks and Hispanics are being discriminated against. And they also want to move the ball. That is, they want to shift the terms of the debate related to race and racism to make it appear as if there is race or to pass a certain piece of legislation that they prefer. So there are these lawsuits that they encourage similarly or similarly inclined people on the outside to file against the government just so the government can enter into a consent decree that for example, in this case, pays people off or maybe sets policies that otherwise would not have been set but for this settlement that was all rigged. This happens frequently, especially with respect to police consent decree litigation, all of that stuff. So when you see these things, you should always view it with a jaundiced, a skeptical eye. Because nine, well, well, I don't know how often, but very often these things are rigged. They are structured to accomplish this objective. Wait until you hear some of the specifics about some of the payouts in this whole thing. And moreover, I want to ask you about what this will lead to. Now that this settlement is going to happen here, how many more dozens or hundreds of lawsuits like this are going to be filed around the country by people who say, I was discriminated against on a test, so I couldn't earn hundreds of thousands of dollars throughout my career. I'll give you that on the other side. Always Right Radio continues. Pete with us on AM 1420, The Answer.
Waking up America from its woke slumber. Always right radio with Bob France on The Answer. Okay, it is 1035. We continue now with uh, Peter Kirstenau. We're talking about a couple of issues involving the ongoing victimization of America. That's what this is all about. Larry Elder used to say, no victocrats allowed. Everybody's a victim, including those who can't pass standardized state tests in order to get a job that they want. So, Pete, going back to uh, the story out of New York, I just want to give you a couple of the uh, specifics here. Herman Grimm, a 64-year-old of Queens, was awarded... The biggest judgment to date in that $1.8 billion uh, collectively to be, to be split among those who were victimized by the test, he's going to get $2,055,383. It includes $1.5 million in back pay for time never clocked, lost interest accrued, and other compensation. They're judging this based on what the teachers and the teacher candidates would have earned had they passed the test and kept working in the city's public school system. And, Pete, it's only going to get more costly for the taxpayers because they're going to get pensions for jobs they never had. And they're going to get lifetime pension payments from the taxpayers uh, uh, that are basically going to be in the, uh, r- roughly in the amounts of what their, uh, what their pension would be if they had been paid those salaries. So, Pete, these numbers are staggering. And once again, we go back to the question of um, how are we supposed to – the state, the city of New York, by the way, said this isn't even something we could have controlled. They said it was a state teaching <clears throat> licensing requirement mandated by the state. They didn't even have any authority over it, yet the city of New York is being uh, uh, held accountable in this judgment for it. If we cannot demand a modicum of ability, talent, merit, or whatever to teach our students, to fly our planes, to operate on us and so forth, Pete, which we've talked about in the past, then what can we do? Yeah, we can't do a whole lot of anything, and that's why this is one of the reasons, one of multiple uh, reasons, why two-thirds, a full two-thirds, Bob, of kids today, K through 12, read below, well, actually, they don't read below. They are not proficient at reading. They're not proficient at math. This is horrific, Bob. It was only just a few years ago. We're not talking 40, 50 years now. It was only a few years ago when you heard that two-thirds of kids in any location was not, were not proficient in math or reading. You would assume, and correctly so, you and I have talked about the cases of, say, Baltimore and Detroit schools where you would have maybe one kid who's proficient or 90% of kids were not proficient or two-thirds. But here, this is across the United States of America. One of the major reasons for this, it is not a small reason, is this fixation on equity that requires a dumbing down, a lowering of standards across the board, not just in terms of the depth and the, the uh, scale of the curriculum, but in terms of the proficiency, the quality of teachers. I'm not saying that we've got a lot of bad teachers out there. Um, or that most teachers are bad, but we've got an unacceptable percentage who are bad, and we've got an unacceptable percentage of school districts and school boards and school administrations that have dumbed down curricula, that have introduced specious subject matter rather than reading, writing, and arithmetic. We're focused on diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we are suffering very... This is predictable. We are suffering as a result, and... This is going to come back to haunt us very, very soon. It's already to a large extent, but it's going to get worse 
before it gets better, and I'm afraid it's not going to get better anytime within our lifetimes. This is horrible what's going on, and we're over here presuming that simply because somebody passed a test that it's, or failed a test that's racially biased, are, Bob, I've done enough of these to know that this is, in almost every case, one giant joke. This is ridiculous. You're trying to tell me that, if you look at the, the, just look at the questions, the questions are so innocuous, they are so unrelated to race as to be absurd in terms of making this kind of claim or proposition. But here's where we are, and for, you know, I mentioned before, you know, some of the machinations that go on between administrations and people who sue on this basis, because they actually invite these lawsuits so they can set certain precedents. But don't discount the fact that a lot of times, these suits are ways of rewarding constituents, okay, where you've got these progressive administrations that decide, you know what, okay, we're going to take money from Peter and pay Paul because Paul votes for us. We, Bob, the level of corruption, as you and I have discussed, unfortunately, over the last couple of years, increasingly, the level of corruption in this country has seeped into most every nook and cranny of America. It's seeped into education. It is a joke. We, look, there are fine teachers out there, but you cannot wave away these numbers. Two-thirds not proficient? Are you kidding me? And as no. you know, in many jurisdictions, we're talking about 90% of kids who can't read at grade level or can't compute math equations that are simplistic for fourth grade. This, this, is, this is absurd. It is civilizational damage that is being done at this level, and we deserve better. I think I should uh, maybe embrace leftism because you're already Peter, and if I'm Paul, that means I get some of your money, right? <laughs> <laughs> it works for me. I mean, that's uh, Pete. Um, I, I did want to hit this real quick as an example of what they consider to be the cultural bias of the test. They say that one version of those tests that were given to those teacher applicants uh, included a question of what is the meaning of a painting by pop artist Andy Warhol, and I'm thinking to myself. I don't think that's culturally biased. I'm as white as can be, and I have no friggin' idea what Andy Warhol right. paintings look yeah. like. But, and this is the reason I asked you at the top of the segment, Pete, um, when you had to take the LSATs when you went to law school, you got to prepare for it. You got to look at, 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 at sample tests. You got to study. You got books. You got all kinds of different things to prepare yourself for it. And if they know that they're going to be tested on things like that, they have an opportunity to prepare for it, just like they will be asking if they are successful, their students, to prepare for the tests they give them that may or may not be necessarily in the cultural wheelhouse of a kid. They've got to prepare themselves and so at the end of the day, when you're talking about a standardized test, nobody takes the ACT blind, nobody takes the uh, the SAT blind or the LSAT or the MCATs or anything else. So why should the teacher certification test be any different? You get an opportunity to prepare. These are the things that are going to be asked about. Get it done. Get your preparation done and get your uh, get your certificate and, and we have no problem. Precisely right. Smart people do those kinds of things. Prepared people do those kinds of things. It doesn't discriminate on the basis of race. It discriminates on the basis of laziness and lack of preparation. But also, think in terms of cultural discrimination that there may be, they, they may uh, in this particular case, the rationale was that certain questions were culturally biased. You know, this is a thing that's been going on for about 50 years now. In 2023, it's extraordinarily difficult to make with a straight face the argument that certain questions are culturally biased, especially when you've got the Internet, for example. Everybody's immersed in all kinds of, of things these days. You can't say something is culturally biased. But more important, 99% of the questions are not culturally biased. To the extent one is, it's based on the stereotype that the test 
challengers have of certain races. They believe that, for example, blacks may not be familiar with whatever. You pick the subject, and so it's culturally biased, as if somehow blacks are insular, that they are contained within the ghetto somewhere and don't have access to telephones, televisions, iPhones, you name it, Uh, computers. They don't have access to these things, as if they live in a cave somewhere. As I've said before, the the patronizing condescension from the left drives virtually all racism today. And the racism comes from the left, and this is harming blacks and Hispanics. And why do the Asians get a pass? Why is it that Asians, by Asians, I mean everybody from, you know, people of Korean descent, Japanese descent, Indian descent, Bangladeshi descent. How is it that their incomes are higher than white Americans? How is it that they escape this somehow? It's just extraordinary. They can never explain that. And, Bob, I would invite your listeners, turn to C-SPAN one day. I'll try to give you a heads up. Tune into C-SPAN or, or whatever when we have hearings on these things and listen for my questions. Usually when I ask questions, it stops everything in its tracks because I cut right to the bone. I cut through the absurdity, the, the pablum that they're spewing out there, and we're permitting this pablum to find its way into newspapers and television That's reports, right. and it's not being challenged critically. When you just pose the simplest questions to the proponents of this type of ideology, the whole thing implodes almost embarrassingly. So we should not, not be cowed by this. We should not be swayed by this. We have to challenge this because we know intuitively this is wrong and it's hurting everybody and it's perpetuating divisions within society. Peter Kersenau is our guest. Peter Kersenau, you invite people to watch C-SPAN and learn a little bit. I invite them to come and watch you. Tonight, you're going to be with the West Park Conservatives in Lakewood, right? Yeah, I am. Thanks, Bob. Yeah, I, I, I'm always remiss in doing this, so I, I, I appreciate this opportunity. I'll be speaking out there, and I'm going to try on your show to the extent I can, Bob, with your permission, to let people know when I'm speaking somewhere. So I'm going to be at uh, speaking to... Uh, the West Park Conservatives at the Calvin Center at 15300 Puritus at 6.30 today. And I'll be out with Shannon tomorrow, Shannon Burns in Strongsville. I can't remember the location. Shannon can probably call in and tell your folks uh, where it's going to be. I, yeah, I I know, know. I've got that. That's gonna, 18, things. Yeah, that's going to be at the Harvest Saloon in uh, Strongsville, which is a phenomenal place. I spoke there uh, last month. It, it is great. You're going to be there, by the way, just to uh, entice people even further. Supreme Court Justice Joe Dieters is going to be there uh, speaking as well as people. Peter tomorrow. So at the Harvest Saloon in Strongsville tomorrow night, 630, you're going to want to be there for that one. Go ahead, Pete. Yeah, and we're going to have a lot of fun. We're going to be talking about some of the things we talk about on your show. I'm going to be raising a lot of issues that I see in the Civil Rights Commission, all of which are in the wheelhouse of conservatives' interests. Um, the country, as you know, is in bad shape. You and I have talked about it. Your show has been principal in making sure that everyone knows that we're at the tipping point. You know, And as I've said before, the tipping point in terms of civilization could be something that lasts for decades, but we are there. There's no doubt about it. And it's a point from which we may not return. And it's frightening at this point to watch what the Biden administration the left is generally doing, especially with our kids, the kind of craziness that they are imposing on the kids. And, you know, um, I don't know what their, their hatred of children is and the hatred of the family, but it started a long time ago. You could go back to Lenin. Lenin understood that you have to interpose the state between family and child. You must do that between parent and child. And if you're successful in doing that, You can produce nice little communist robots. He understood all of that stuff. And what they're doing here is trying to produce nice little progressive robots who do not question what is going on, the stupidity and inanity of the progressive policy proposals, but simply just march along like good 
uh, little soldiers to oblivion. I'm glad you asked uh, you know, or mentioned about uh, their dislike of children, what they have against kids, because uh, I want to get another story in here, Pete. This one is um, this one is disturbing. A federal judge this week dismissed a lawsuit challenging the Chico Unified School District out in California, their policy of protecting gender identities of students from their parents. Um, most schools, you cannot give a kid a Tylenol if they say they have a headache or if they got whacked in the head with a with a ball at, at recess or something. I don't even know if they have gym class anymore. You can't give them a Tylenol without calling home and making sure it's okay with the parents. But you can counsel and participate in the psychological transitioning and sex change of a child without parents knowing. As a matter of fact, you can intentionally keep it from those parents. U.S. District Court Judge John Mendez said in a ruling that the authority of the district to safeguard the information overrode parental rights. In doing so, he was able to keep intact guidance by California school officials to shield the privacy rights of transgender students from their parents. Pete? Um, I'm going to be measured in my comments because I don't want the station to go off the air. But I suppose that almost everyone of your listeners has the same reaction that I do, uh, at least those who are parents and grandparents. I don't care what a school district says or what a judge says. I'm afraid, you know, maybe I'll get disbarred for saying that. But there's a fundamental principle involved. These are not the state's kids. This is not the judge's kid. This is not some school district kid. This is my kid. Nobody cares about them the way I do. They don't even know my kids' names. They don't know anything about them. I'm the one who protects them. They are mine. And if they decide to sue something, the the easiest thing I will do is pull them from that school district, okay? But I will say this, and I've said it very often, and, you know, I'll go to jail for doing this kind of stuff. One day, something's going to happen, and all the witnesses are going to say that I heard Kirsten Al predict this in the Bob France show. If you were to do something like this to one of my grandkids, if one of my grandkids' school sends off, you know, some type of rule such as that or sends off a message to parents like that, um, that school district is going to have hell to pay in so many different ways that they won't know what happened to them. And I suspect most of your listeners would concur. The difference is I will take action. The problem with pulling them out of that school district is, according to what I read, it's statewide. Uh, this particular federal judge was ruling on the Chico then Unified School District, but it's a California, California. Yeah, go. And many and million, China. Heck. Yeah. By hundreds of thousands of every year, millions collectively, they are doing exactly that. They're moving out of California and into uh, into red states that have a little bit more opportunity for, for parents to actually be parents. Peter, last story for you. They closed the investigation since the last time we talked. <laughs> the Secret Service apparently uh, could not find the owner of the little baggie of white powder that was labeled property of H. Biden on it. Uh, they couldn't figure out whose it was. They closed their investigation without naming a culprit, and the matter is now considered sealed. Uh, I'm Two questions for you, Pete. Number one, <laughs> why, why, why is Joe Biden satisfied with that? When uh, when uh, Karine Jean Pierre, his black and gay press secretary, she's black and gay. If you didn't know, she wants you to know. Really? Uh, she, yeah, that, that's important to them. 
Uh, when his black and gay press secretary said at the very beginning, President uh, Biden is very, very concerned and wants to get to the bottom of this. So the Secret Service closes the investigation without getting to the bottom of this. And the response from the White House, the black and gay press sec- secretary said that um, uh, the, the, the Secret Service did a very thorough job. They didn't find anything, but they did a very thorough job. That's number one. Number two, Peter, if a a bag of white powder comes into the White House, and we don't know if it's cocaine or anthrax or fentanyl or ricin or anything else, for crying out loud, I think that's a national security issue. I think it's also all of those are illicit substances, including cocaine, making it a law enforcement issue. So how the hell come the FBI wasn't involved in this investigation why was it only secret service why didn't the law enforcement branch of the doj why did they not come and say we'll investigate and get to the bottom of this hell we connect killers from a a, a piece of hair left on a pizza box uh to uh, you know to find a 10 year old killer they can find anything why didn't the fbi take a role have a role in this yeah well this story is less about hunter biden than it is about the contempt with which Many of our federal agencies under the Biden administration, but overall, hold the American people. Every single person, the day that bag was found, everybody said to themselves, Hunter Biden. This was not a mystery. And it was Hunter Biden. Everybody knows it was Hunter Biden. In the history of the United States, never has cocaine been found in the White House. Never. And then, when an admitted crack addict, the son of the president, enters the White House, all of a sudden we find cocaine. This is like a coincidence beyond all coincidences. But what's amazing to me and what is so troubling, and we predicted, we knew it was going to happen, and we're used to it now, the contempt with which the IRS, the FBI, now the Secret Service and others hold the American people that they would lie to our faces when everyone knew what the truth is and then say, okay, nothing to see here, move along. And then the corrupt media will maybe make a little squeak here and there, but go along with the story. That tells you we no longer have a democratic republic where the government is accountable to the people. We have lords and masters, and we have a disparate system of government or by system of government where you've got Democrats on one side. And let's be honest about it. It's Democrats. Republicans could never get away with this. Now, you may have some idiot on MSNBC try to squawk and say, oh, no, 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 no. But that is part of the problem. You've got the, the media that is corrupt. It is state party media. And it's that simple. I should not say these things, you know, even as little as five years ago. But now it's irrefutable. We have this corruption in the government that is it seems to be expanding at geometric rates. It's swallowing up almost every institution that the American people, I used to respect the FBI and Secret Service and everybody else, and I respect individual people who don't have control over the policy prescriptions of the people like the Rays and other people like that. But, you know, we saw a little bit of this maybe eight, ten years ago with uh, Lois Lerner and the IRS, but it has proceeded apace so that now I trust no one when they come from the government. Nobody whatsoever. In fact, I presume they're going to do me harm until they demonstrate otherwise. Peter Kirsten, our Eric Clapton just could not wait there. He kept interrupting you. My apologies for that. But uh... <laughs> Hunter's... Yeah, we're going to rename that Hunter's Cocaine. Uh, Peter Kersenow tonight in Lakewood. Uh, where's that uh, location again, Pete? Yeah, it's uh, at the Calvin Center, 15300 Puritus, Calvin Center. Be there or be square. We're going to have fun. We're going to have, uh, we're probably all going to get drunk, and we're going to shoot off <laughs> weapons most likely. <laughs> 
Tomorrow, tonight with the uh, uh, West Park Conservatives, and then tomorrow at the Strongsville GOP. Make sure you're there for that. They're going to pass out hundreds of yes on issue one yard signs tomorrow in uh, Strongsville as well. Go see Peter Kirsten now. It's going to be a great time. Peter, thank you, my friend. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Bob. You Bye-bye. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. You and I know and do not believe that life is so dear and peace so sweet as to be purchased at the price of chains and slavery. If nothing in life is worth dying for, when did this begin? Just in the face of this enemy? Or should Moses have told the children of Israel to live in slavery under the pharaohs? Should Christ have refused the cross? Should the patriots at Concord Bridge have thrown down their guns and refused to fire the shot heard round the world? The martyrs of history were not fools. And our honored dead, who gave their lives to stop the advance of the Nazis, didn't die in vain. Where then is the road to peace? Well, it's a simple answer after all. You and I have the courage to say to our enemies, there is a price we will not pay. There is a point beyond which they must not advance. is Always Right Radio with Bob Friends on AM 1420, The Answer. Alrighty, hour number three underway. It is not the final hour for me today, however. I'm going to take a little break, and I'm coming back for three more at three o'clock. I'll be hosting Dr. Gorka's show today and tomorrow and Thursday and Friday. So you're going to get six hours. You're going to get sick of me. I hope you're not. I'm going to try to bring you fresh stuff in the afternoon, although some of the stories do have to be brought to the national audience that you have uh, been exposed to here today. But uh, tune in and uh, be a part of it. I'll be live for Dr. G uh, at 3 o'clock today. It is a uh, Tuesday, the 18th morning of the seventh month, year of our Lord, 2023. If you uh, have not heard, uh, the, or rather if you missed this, what I'm trying to say, the Kersenau interview, it'll be up for you along with the rest of the show about an hour after this show ends at around 1 o'clock. So make sure that you uh, check it out on the podcast page if you missed anything from Pete. So uh, another quick announcement. I have um, I have reactivated my radio show Facebook page. I have stopped using it and almost deactivated it for a long, long, long time. I had only been using my private Facebook page, which I'm making public posts on anyway, so it's kind of irrelevant. But I try to kind of keep the uh, private page to more personal things. Although I still will put show topics on there, but I'm definitely using the uh, the public page. So if you are not yet on Facebook following me at Always Right Radio, I would appreciate it if you do. Just log on and look for Always Right Radio uh, and, um, and just click uh, follow. And uh, everything that I post on there will be coming up. I've got up there right now my interview from last week with Jack Windsor as he provided seven strong reasons to vote yes on issue one. Uh, so that is up there. Also from AMAC, the hypocrisy of issue one opponents in Ohio. I've got that posted. These things are also on my Twitter page, which is, uh, France Rants, F-R-A-N-T-Z, R-A-N-T-Z. But you'll see from AMAC the uh, hypocrisy of issue one, which I'm going to talk about in a second, the opponents of issue one. Also the ridiculous sleep study that I talked about too. The racial inequality of sleep. Blacks don't sleep as well as whites and that's racist. That story is up there. 
and uh, and there's going to be a whole lot more. So uh, keep checking back uh, and follow that. I'm also on Rumble. I've started a Rumble account now. I'm putting show segments up there. I'm putting our bits up there. Hunters in the Basement is there. Uh, Facebook Prison uh, um, uh Facebook prison. What am I trying to say? Facebook prison. It's not prison jail. What am I trying to say? For crying out loud, the Facebook prison parody. I guess is I guess is what we're calling it. I can't remember what the hell I called it. Uh, but anyway, that's up there as well, along with uh, some of the other bits and some of the great interviews. Those are going to be on my Rumble page. Again, that's always right. So look for it and follow me on as many social media places as you can. Now, speaking of, and by the way, this hour is guest free. So hit me up at 216-901-0945. Facebook Prison Blues is what it's called. It just hit me. Facebook Prison Blues. 216-901-0945. We will be wide open for your phone calls this hour. But let me uh, let me hit you, hit you with this just real quick. This is something that was put about, put out by AMAC. That's the Association of Mature American Citizens. I am a member and they put a great piece out exposing the hypocrisy of the opponents of issue one in, in Ohio. Those who wish to amend the Ohio Constitution all willy nilly with a simple 50% plus one voter, uh, at a high or a low turnout, uh, election to change the Constitution, which is just this side of insane. Here are some of the organizations that have come out against issue one. Organizations that require a supermajority of 60% or higher of their own voting members to change their own constitution, their own bylaws, including the Democrat Party of Ohio. The Democrat Party of Ohio requires 60%, not 50% plus one voter, 60% of its delegates to vote in favor of any changes to that organization's constitution. They also require that any candidate seeking the official endorsement before the primaries must receive the backing of what? 50% of the executive committee plus one? Nope, 60%. Further, in order for members of the Democratic National Committee to revise its charter, they must meet a threshold of two-thirds, 66.6%. They know that changing something as foundational as a constitution or an organization's set of bylaws is profound. Changing a constitution or set of bylaws is profoundly impactful of the entire organization. And that's why it can't be willy-nilly 50% of us say one, 50% of the other, and one voter will tip it over. It should be a strong majority. The Democratic National Committee, the Democratic Party of Ohio agree. It should be a strong majority, 60% to two-thirds, which is 66.6%. Yet the Democrat Party of Ohio opposes Issue 1, which would require 60% for the Ohio Constitution. I'd love for them to explain that. The ACLU opposes, and they're an outspoken opponent of Issue 1. Their bylaws, the ACLU of Ohio, require not a 50% plus one, but a 60% vote to remove an officer or member of the board of directors. The national ACLU bylaws also require, with some exceptions, a two-thirds, 66.6% majority vote in order for the board to overturn an action by the executive committee. They know that substantial, impactful agenda items like amendments to constitutions or overturning actions by executive committees and boards should require a supermajority. 
Not a simple majority. How about Planned Parenthood? How about the butchers that run the most lethal killing organization on the face of the planet, and that includes both the Chinese and the Russian militaries? Nobody else kills more people than Planned Parenthood. But that's aside from the point here. Planned Parenthood, which hopes to benefit lucratively for, from millions upon millions of dollars coming into their uh, clinics as pregnant women come in and have their babies mutilated, butchered, dismembered, limb from painful limb, all the way up to the moment of birth if this November amendment goes through. Planned Parenthood lobbying aggressively against issue one for that reason, describing it as an anti-democratic change. They require a vote of two-thirds, 66%, to amend their own bylaws. I mean, how thick is the hypocrisy here? Can you cut it? I can. How about the League of Women Voters? Also very vocal opponents of issue one. How dare the proponents of issue one want to have a supermajority of simply 60% to change the entire constitution of the state? What a terrible idea that is. How undemocratic of you, says the League of Women Voters, except for the fact they require a two-thirds, 66%, to amend their own bylaws. How about the NAACP? The NAACP requires a two-thirds, 66% vote to amend the bylaws of local chapters, including those in Ohio. They have come out in strong opposition to Issue 1, which would require only a 60% vote to change our bylaws, which another word for our Constitution. And then how about the teachers' unions, the radical teachers' unions? Multiple local teachers' unions in Ohio, like the Northeastern Ohio Education Association, the Columbus uh, Education Association, the Ohio Federation of Teachers, they require three Fourth's majority, 75%, to amend their own constitutions. The OEA is part of the coalition of left-wing groups opposing Issue 1, which requires only 60%. That's why AMAC is reminding you to vote yes on Issue 1. It's why I am reminding you to vote yes on Issue 1. Do it on August 8th, but early voting has already started, so do it early. I have to throw that out there. In the first hour of the program today, you may or may not have heard, I read in its full uh, uh, length, I read the entire article, an op-ed that was written by um, a member of the Plain Dealer Editorial Board in response to 36 anti-issue one op-eds or podcast uh, um, uh, programs that Cleveland.com has put out there in opposition issue one. There have only been two articles in favor of issue one. Both of them were written by Ted Dieden, member of the editorial board. I read that in, t- in its entirety in the first hour of the program. If you missed it, you should read it. I'm going to read a small portion of it in just a bit because I don't have time to read the entire thing again. But I want you to know how to answer those who say, why are you supporting issue one? How do you think it's democratic? What is wrong with the, what's been done in this state for the last 111 years, etc., etc., etc.? 
I want you to know how to answer it. I think Ted covered every single angle of this thing in his op-ed, and I think it's something you should use. You should really save the link, uh, put it on your own social media, save it to your, to your own uh, 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 desktop, on your computer, save it to your phone, whatever you have to do. And if anybody says, tell me why I should support issue one, send them Teb Diodin's uh, column. All right, 216-901-0945 and 888-281-1110. Navy man Norm is in Strongsville. Navy man Norm, good morning. Go right ahead, sir. Good morning, Bob. I just wanted to comment about your uh, expose of MSNBC's uh, physically fit, uh, <laughs> white supremacist and racist uh, bovine excrement. I guess it hasn't dawned on them that those of us, uh, myself included, who lost a considerable amount of weight because I was eating too much junk food and snacking, was doing so because I'm a white supremacist, not because I wanted to be a healthy human being, not because I wanted to live long, and certainly not because I wanted to embrace the attributes of MSNBC and the Democrats, that being sloth, gluttony, envy, laziness, and, of course, gorging yourself at the public trough for your entire career. Now, I guess I've gone wrong somewhere because, as a veteran of the Navy, I took pride in my service to my country. I took pride in the fact that my fellow shipmates had my back. I took pride in the fact that I was given three squares a day and I was staying physically fit in the service. And it's, it's funny. I don't know, Bob, if you've told your listeners what the definition of a white supremacist is. It's really a man or a woman that believes in their God, that's willing to fight and die for their country, that loves and will protect their family, that has a job, that has a career, that looks after their neighbors, and does a variety of other things that are abhorrent and, uh, shall we say, disgusting to the left, because it stands for good. Now, when the time comes that if we ever, ever emulate with these carry-on and vultures on the left uh, say about us, then we're, we're gone. But in the meantime, I, you know, uh, when it comes to pronouns and things of that nature, I prefer a verb. And the verb I have to MSNBC and the rest of them, let's just say the second word is you. <laughs> I was hoping you were going to be careful week. there, and I'm glad you did. <laughs> I kind of saw where you were going, so I wanted to make sure you were good. Norm, you're right, and you are easily one of the most white supremacist people I know because I know you're in tremendous shape. Uh, you uh, you have stayed fit. Uh, good for you, and obviously I say that tongue-in-cheek uh, because that's exactly how insane these people are. Thank you, my friend, for the call, and God bless you. Stay in shape. Stay supremacist if that's what it takes. Tim is in uh, Chesterland. Hi, Tim. You're on the air. Fire away. Hello, Bob. Um, Calling regarding this uh, phrase that Joe Biden has used on a couple of occasions, referred to as the Great American Reset, but there's been no definition, at least none that I've heard, of what this Great American Reset is supposed to be all about. Well, I, I... 
he decided to take advantage of uh, one of your advertisers, that is Swiss America, mm-hmm. and uh, he's offering a booklet and other information describing exactly what this mess is all about, and it is a living nightmare, and this, in my opinion, is the final nail in the coffin of the middle class that this guy has hated for the past two years and and still says he has a hatred for the middle class because we voted for President Trump and he's going to destroy us permanently. And there are uh, some of the Western states, as described in this booklet, uh, have already instituted uh, what they want to refer to our, as laws that allows the state troopers out there to pull you over, even if uh, for a minor discrepancy, say for not using your turn signal and you're changing lanes or something like that. And they, the officer will pull you over. He'll ask you if you have any drugs in the car, any guns in the car, or any cash in the car. And uh, if you answer yes to carrying the cash... He, he confiscates it right there on the spot, and you have little to no chance of getting your money back because there's the way the, they have this law written. Uh, it, you're either going to pay an arm and a leg to hire an attorney to, to try and get it back for you, uh, or you, you just forfeit forfeit the money. And then they also describe how the there's lost of that uh, the states. Uh, have this forfeiture, and they turn the cash over to the federal government, and then the federal government will give them back to you. And uh, if indeed you do file a lawsuit, it's it's filed, uh, or the the government will have a, a lawsuit against the cash, not against you personally, but against the cash that you were forced to surrender to them. And it doesn't. It doesn't even matter if you've gotten this money legitimately. It, okay. it described how there's pastors of a church carrying the the money from the Sunday collections to the 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 bank or the safe or whatever, and uh, it just goes on and on. And uh, this is being very quiet. And Biden said that on July 26th he was going to make this announcement of telling us we must turn in our cash for for this uh, nonsensical digital currency that uh, they're going to give us. Okay, there there is there's a, there's a lot there. And Tim, thanks for the phone call. I got to get a break here. Uh there's a lot there. Uh the great reset is real. The push toward cryptocurrency is real. Every single specific detail of that is not. Uh, and that's something, obviously, we just have to work our way through as we go. There's not going to be an Im- imminent moment when you have to turn in all of your cash cash in exchange for uh, cryptocurrency. There are a lot. Uh, as an old saying uh, once uh, once went, uh, there's many a slip twixt a cup and a lip. And uh, we are not there yet. But, yeah, we have to be alert to the Great Reset. It is real. Thank you for the call. It's 1128. We'll be back. You walk around in other towns. This hour of Always Right Radio is brought to you by The Floor King and KeepingMedicareSimple.com. Oh, yes, indeed. Final segment of the broadcast. I'm going to squeeze a call or two in here. Then I got something I need you to listen to. Joe is in Westlake. Joe, you're on AM 1420. The answer. Fireway, sir. Hello, Joe. Can you hear me, Joe? Joe, 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 Joe. Good morning, Bob. Peter Kersnell made yet another critical point this morning. Mm -hmm. He mentioned that in certain school districts, 
two-thirds of students don't have minimum competency scores, and he pointed out that that was a very extreme, destructive thing to happen to our nation, and I think that it goes even further than that. I think it's reached a point where it's an outright, non-fixable catastrophe in multiple ways, and what that means is to avoid becoming like a nation like Brazil, a zone of a chaotic socialism, we need to switch to a new conservative strategy, one where we focus on fortresses of county conservative power to resist the unstoppable degeneracy of not only the the federal government, but also the state government. I've got a little more on issue one, but first uh, I, I'm looking for your thoughts on that. Well, um, I, I'm probably more on what you're going to say about issue one, but everything you just said about Peter's right, and um, you know, with with respect to uh, the the two thirds problem, I, I don't want to be, I don't want to oversimplify this because it it is com- more complex than I'm going to make it. But I'm telling you, I believe that the ongoing attack and the destruction of the family is more critical to our poor performing students than even the schools are radical schools are teaching you know crt and other crap instead of the things they need to be teaching our kids so yes they are uh unprepared and 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 not performing well but i think parents who are in the home who have uh who have say over their children if you will who own their children which they do they are their guardians and they can make them do things like homework go to class study and so forth i think the ongoing destruction of the american family and the separation of children from parents has cost parents their authority over their kids and i think those kids running wild not doing what mother and father say if they even have them around at all is as much as much to blame for the poor performance at the academic level or in the academic realm i guess i should say as anything else so i think the the problems are myriad, but that to me is the biggest one. Wow, thanks. That's a critical point, Bob. Thank you for that. Now on to uh, issue one. Issue one. Yeah. Uh, I think that it is the right thing to do philosophically and in theory to raise the threshold to at least 60%, if not even more, for the reasons you were talking about earlier. But here's the one fly in the ointment. It's more questionable on a short-term practical power basis. The reason why is not only will it hurt our potential other conservative amendments, it'll hurt our ability to try to move power to the counties as we need to do because of this unstoppable chaos. Now, here's another quick fact about that. Florida raised its threshold to 60% in 2006, yet since then they've, they've still passed a few leftist amendments, like raising the minimum wage. So what my great fear is, is that if we pass this before we build more power and fix the voting system, what happens if we get a yes in August and then a yes in November by cheating or other means? That's that's my concern. Thanks. You got it. I appreciate that. And that's what a lot of people have said is a concern, too. And, and it's a fair concern. It's possible. We can pass this thing and they still get 60%, and then it's going to take us with another amendment to get 60% of the people to flip and, and, and to undo that amendment. It is real. It is possible. But I, I have faith and I have confidence in what the state of Ohio is. The state of Ohio is a conservative red state. There's just no doubting that. I mean, Ted Diaden, who I quoted before in the first hour of the broadcast, uh, points out how red we are. I mean, we literally swept nine um, statewide races. You know, the left likes to say it's all gerrymandered. That's why there's a Republican supermajority in the House and the Senate in Ohio. But uh, but that doesn't that doesn't explain the state races. The state races go to the to the conservative Republican side, or at least the Republican side, not always conservatives. In the case of Mike DeWine, for example. 
over and over and over again. We just swept nine of them. The last two presidential elections, Trump won uh, by eight points. wasn't even close. We used to be considered a swing state. We're not a swing state anymore. I have faith in what the Ohio, the state of Ohio is. So I will take my chances putting the 60% threshold in place, which is only reasonable and commonsensible as far as I'm concerned. Um, I will put that in place and then trust the legislature to do its job. And if the legislature doesn't, fire them and choose new representation to put our uh, demands to work. You know, at the state house. That's the way I see it. I and I'm I'm okay with that. I would absolutely be okay with that because I think, as Ted said, I'm going to read a little bit of Ted Dieten, which I said I was going to do before the end of the show. Ted Dieten for Cleveland.com and the and the Plain Dealer. A constitution is the stable and sturdy framework of a government built for the long term. It's a document that describes powers and processes and ensures continuity. It should be amended only rarely and then only with a supermajority support. The U.S. Constitution requires a two-thirds vote from each House of Congress and concurrence from three-fourths of the state legislatures of all 50 states, a significantly higher bar than a simple 60% majority that Ohio Issue 1 proposes. Because of that, it's been amended, the state of the U.S. Constitution, only 27 times in 235 years. And, oh, by the way, the first 10 are the, the, the Bill of Rights, for crying out loud. Larding up the Ohio Constitution with expedient legislation masquerading as amendments weakens it and subjects it to the whims of whichever way the political winds are blowing at the time. Unlike legislation, every word of a constitutional amendment is chiseled in stone. It cannot be changed, withdrawn, or restructured without another constitutional amendment. Perfect examples are the redistricting amendments that Ohio voters approved in 2015 and 18. They were clumsily and inartfully drawn, as we saw over and over last year, while the legislature and the Supreme Court struggled in partisan arm wrestling to interpret and enforce them. With proposed amendments regulating abortion and recreational marijuana looming, there is no reason to to expect any more clarity in the future if either or both of those are passed. That's why they have to be stopped. And Ted also writes, Issue 1's opponents keep calling this an attack on democracy. It is not. There are two responses to that dishonest and misleading accusation you should take with you. First, a constitutional amendment is not the only way that citizen-based, grassroots organization can get a proposal on the ballot. They can propose their own laws. As outlined in Article 2 of the Ohio Constitution, they can start by petitioning the legislature, and if the legislature declines to act, they can file a supplemental petition and collect signatures to get the proposal on the ballot. And second, obviously, far from attacking democracy, Issue 1 proponents, that's us, are using democracy in their effort to get the issue passed. The vote on August 8th is one person, one vote. And we'll determine what happens, up or down, 50% plus one, which they should be happy about. The people will decide. Majority rules and democracy is in action. Read that. I've tweeted it out on uh, uh, Twitter from France Rants. I've put it on my Facebook page, uh, which is Always Right Radio, and I'll put it on True Social and everywhere else I can find it, too. It's great information. Thanks to my guests. Thanks to my team. Thanks to you for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye-bye. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.